Now we come to God's word. David, a man after God's own heart, part 11. And this morning, the title for this morning's message, The New King from 2 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. So as we continue our series on the life of King David, we arrive at a, at a crucial point in the story, the end of Saul and the rise of David. The words of God through Samuel were fulfilled the very next day as Saul and his sons, including Jonathan, died in battle. We looked at that story last week. The Israelites suffered a terrible defeat at the hands of the Philistines. The enemy now occupied many large cities in the northeast of Israel on both sides of the Jordan River. Providentially, as we know, David and his men, they were going to be part of that battle against the Israelites, but after uh, one of the generals objected, they were sent back home. And uh, unfortunately, when, when they got back home, the Amalekites had raided their town of Ziklag, taking everything, including their families, with them. Eventually, David and his men go on a rescue mission. They defeat the enemy and return back to base. But victory is short-lived as David hears the tragic news regarding the death of Saul and three of his sons. This included, of course, his best friend, Jonathan. And David is overcome with grief. And this is what we read in 2 Samuel chapter 1, verses 11 to 12. Then David and all the men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. They mourned and wept and fasted till evening for Saul and his, and his son Jonathan and for the army of the Lord and the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. These were indeed troubled times that they were living in. Our first heading this morning then is humble beginnings from verses 1 to 4. In the course of time, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up to one of the towns of Judah? He asked. And the Lord said, go up. And David asked, where shall I go? And to Hebron, the Lord answered. So David went up there with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the of Carmel. David also took the men who were with him, each with his family, and they settled in Hebron and its towns. Then the men of Judah came to Hebron, and there they anointed David king over the tribe of Judah. So this, this long-awaited moment has finally arrived. David's many years on the run from Saul were over. And remarkably... Despite all the provocation and persecution from Saul, the suffering, the suffering and the many ups and downs, David managed to keep it all together. And this was an act of the grace of God. And now that Saul was dead, it was time for God's purposes for David and his kingdom to be fulfilled. And let's remember that David becoming king was not a, a matter of personal goal or ambition or I want to be king. 
that type of thing. But it was in obedience, wholly in obedience to the promise of God who had anointed him through Samuel all those years before. And of course, much has happened since then. Now, we don't know how long David waited in his Philistine base in Ziklag before heading back into Israelite territory. The phrase which says there, in the course of time, seems to indicate that the proper period of mourning for Saul and his sons had passed before he moved on. But before doing anything else, David's first initiative was to ask direction from God. And it's very clear. He says, where shall I go? And as we know, David learnt the hard way to always consult the Lord first, which was in contrast to Saul, who didn't want to consult the Lord, and even when he did, he didn't want to listen to what the Lord told him. Years earlier, Samuel told Saul that as the Lord's anointed king over Israel, he must listen to the words of the Lord But Saul's kingship failed and he died at the hands of the Philistines precisely because he did not obey the voice of the Lord. And then as we saw last week, when he sought the Lord, it was all too little, too late because the Lord would no longer talk to him. Now after such a long wait to finally be king, there doesn't appear to be too much pomp And ceremony, uh, which you probably might expect at a a coronation, when, when, as these men of Judah come and they anoint David as king. You see, he's king over just one tribe. Not the 12 tribes, just one. He will, eventually he will be king, obviously, but he will have to wait over seven years before that happens in in 2 Samuel chapter 5. But here, something very important happens. Here at Hebron, for the first time, God's chosen king visibly ruled on earth. Now something about Hebron. Hebron was was an important town located on a mountain ridge in Judah, about 30 kilometres south of Jerusalem. Now, during our our trip to Israel a few years ago, unfortunately, we were not able to get to to Hebron because it is in in a conflict zone in, in Palestinian territory. So why did God tell David to go to Hebron? Let's join some, some dots here. Firstly, Hebron was the place where Abraham built an altar to the Lord after he was separated from Lot. Sarah, his wife, died and was buried there. And later, uh, Abraham and Rebekah, Jacob, Leah were also buried there. Secondly, Hebron was the, the first part of the land purchased by Abraham as promised by the Lord. It it is safe to say that Hebron is where Israel's life in the promised land began. 
So, so here is an important connection that, that we must not overlook. David's move to Hebron connects him with the promises that God had made to Abraham to be blessed and to be a blessing to the nations of the earth. Thirdly, David's going up to Hebron anticipates the fact that Jesus will be introduced in the very first verse in the New Testament in this way, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. And this is what it says. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This is why the key to understanding David is the same key to understanding Jesus as the fulfilment of God's promises to Abraham and to the rest of the nations. But for now, the kingdom of God is is humbly tucked away in the hills of Judah. But, but, But don't let the modest form of the kingdom blind you to the, to the real presence of the kingdom. David becoming king is, is a crucial piece of God's unfolding redemptive purpose for the world that he has made. And we know that his purpose is to bring all things under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, for us as followers of Jesus... We could say that presently we find ourselves in a Hebron type of stage where we see literal of the power and the, and, and the glory of the kingdom. We want to be there. We want to see it. We want to experience it in its fullness. And we struggle, we yearn for that, but we, we're not there yet. But perhaps we need to look closer with the eyes of faith and acknowledge that our king is already reigning. So don't be fooled by the despair and the uncertainty that is all around us. All those things that our brother Ted has mentioned in in the prayer. We live in a troubled world. But let's also keep a a, a heavenly perspective, which is what the Apostle Paul told the Ephesians. This is what he said. He says, that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, And every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. That's a great promise, isn't it? But it's not just a promise, this is already a reality. Now, last year we did a series on the parables of the kingdom that Jesus, that Jesus told in order to teach us about the kingdom of God, what it was like. And one of the shorter parables 
And you know it, he goes like this. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a, like a mustard seed, which a, a man took and planted in his field. And though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and they perch in its branches. And I suppose, well, well most of us want to jump quickly and, and, and focus on, on, on the growth the emphasis in this kingdom parable is actually its humble beginnings, the smallest of the seeds. Hardly noticed. Perhaps many believers are struggling with the kingdom's obscurity, hiddenness, and even relative weakness in its present form. But let us never forget that God's power is actually made perfect in weakness. Let us never forget that. In verses 4 to 7, crafty politicking. When David was told that the men, of, uh, that the men from Jabesh Gilead who had buried Saul, he sent messengers to them to say to them, the Lord bless you for showing this kindness to Saul, your master, by burying him. And may the Lord now show you kindness and faithfulness, and I too will show you the same favour because you have done this. Now then, be strong and brave, for Saul, your master, is dead, and the people of Judah have anointed me king over them. Someone told David about the last kindness the men of Jabesh Gilead had shown to Saul and his sons after they were killed in battle. Now these men, in a daring raid, they, they marched some 30 kilometres with the mission to retrieve their remains, which were unceremoniously pinned to a wall in a Philistine city. So after this daring raid, they, they steal their bodies and then proceed to care for their remains. So David sends an appeal to the men of Jabesh Gilead, thanking them for their kindness. But while at it, he makes a bid for their allegiance to his kingship. I suppose that there's no reason why we cannot mix condolences and political, with political campaigning in the same time. You see, we, we, we can see here how the politician in him comes out when he says, I too will show you the same favour. He's trying to win them over. He boldly then expects a, a positive response from them by, by wanting them, asking them to submit to his, his kingship. It appears... The king has learnt a lot and he's come a long way from his humble shepherd days. So David was shrewd and crafty in his effort to win over their support. And, and we don't know how the, the men, the people of Jabesh Gilead responded to his appeal to come under his kingship. And as we all know, uh, politics 
is often messy and dishonorable. So I just want to talk a little bit about politics because it, it's, uh, I, I suppose in, in the present time it's in everybody's lips. One dictionary defines politics as the use of underhanded and unscrupulous methods in obtaining power or advancement within an organisation. Well, the widespread cynicism today about politics and politicians is not good, but it is understandable. Um, In that vein of thought, uh, Will Rogers, the American Will Rogers once said, I love a dog. He does nothing for political reasons. But perhaps a kinder way to look at it is to say that politics is the process by which policies and actions are formulated and enacted in an organisation or society. This is why it is very important, despite all the pitfalls. The Bible's general teaching encourages honour and respect for those who hold political office. Whether they acknowledge it or not, these political leaders are ultimately responsible to God for the exercise of their authority. Now, even at the best of times, the dreams and and promises that are made during election time never quite matches the reality afterwards, does it? And it's because of this reason that if you place all your hopes in politics, you will be disappointed. But for all of the cynicism, we cannot afford to be completely disengaged from the political process. As Plato once said, and I quote, the penalty that good men pay for not being interested in politics is to be governed by men worse than themselves. End of quote. So we need to realise that we individually mess up our lives in various ways and hurt others. And similarly, those who have power in an organisation or government are never entirely pure in their motives and actions because they come from us. So, and, and much blame in our current climate is being, being thrust, for example, on, on the Premier and the Prime Minister. No one likes what's going on and, and the anger in the population is palpable. They do this, it's wrong. They do that, it's wrong. And within a a year, we we can see it. This time last year, you know, they've gone from hero to zero within a period of of a year in the eyes of the people. And one solution, one solution is come election time, we keep changing leaders. Let's put someone else in and see if we can find a good one. But perhaps, have you thought about this, that perhaps in judgment, God gives us the leaders we deserve. In Proverbs, this is what it says, Proverbs 28 verse 2, when the land transgresses, it has many rulers, but with a man of understanding and knowledge, its stability will long continue. What does that mean? 
It's easy to blame our leaders for the problems we face. But God actually spreads responsibility to all of us. Both leaders and followers are to be righteous so that we can all be blessed and prosper. So when a nation is is disobedient and rebellious, the land becomes unstable. And in that instability, they keep electing new leaders after every election and rulers come and go. But isn't this just a reflection, an indictment on a society that has moved away from God? And in that judgment, in that indictment, it is the same thing that is reflected in our leadership. And when a nation pushes for righteousness, they will be rewarded with good leadership. This is why we need to pray, as the Bible tells us to do. Pray for them, uphold them in prayer. Plead for wisdom. Now, for all of the ideologies and efforts that are out there, we have to recognize, we have to humbly recognize that as sinners, we are not good, wise, or strong enough to build a just, peaceful, and prosperous society. We cannot bring in the kingdom of God with our efforts. Only God can do that. And maybe, maybe it was meant to be that way so that our ultimate longing would be for God and his kingdom in whom is our only eternal hope. Maybe we are meant to be always longing for something better because this is not our home. And this is why our King Jesus Christ is calling all people to his kingdom by starting small, by changing their outlook, their direction of their lives and so that they will learn to trust him as their king above all else. And this is why Jesus said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. Let us remember that. Now in verses 8 to 11, the brazen opposition. Meanwhile, Abner, son of Ner, the commander of Saul's army, had taken Ishbosheth, son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. He made him king over Gilead, Assyrian, Jezreel, and also over Ephraim, Benjamin, and all Israel. Ishbosheth, Son of Saul was 40 years old when he became king over Israel and he reigned for two years. The tribe of Judah, however, remained loyal to David. And the length of time David was king in Hebron over Judah was seven years and six months. History shows that the death of a king creates a vacuum with many jockeying for positions in order to fill, positions of power in order to fill the void. 
And this is what happened here between the followers of David and those who were still committed to Saul. This starts a civil, a civil war, a civil conflict that will continue for these for three chapters. Abner, Saul's former general and commander, well, he was brazen and blatant in his opposition to David's instalment as king. Abner, by the way, he was also he was Saul's cousin, so he was part of the family. And, and he made sure that this hostility between the house of Saul and the house of David would continue for years to come. So what he did is that while David was installed as God's king in Hebron, Abner, in rebellion, installs God's surviving son, Ishbosheth, as a puppet rival king in Mahanaim. And this was an obvious act of rebellion, not just against David, but against God, because Abner knew that God had promised the kingship to David. So in opposing God's chosen king, Abner was opposing God's kingship and will. In Psalm 2, this is what we read, Psalm 2 verse 2. Why do the nations conspire and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed. Hasn't that been going on for a while? Which foreshadows, which foreshadows what Jesus told in a parable about the, the people's reaction to his own kingship. And this is what the people said in Luke chapter 19, verse 14. We don't want this man to be our king. It must be said that neither David, the king in Hebron, nor Ishbosheth, the king in Mahanaim, were too involved in the sad events that transpire. You probably need to read these chapters just to uh, understand a little bit of what is going on and it becomes a bloody affair. David's general was Joab and Abner, uh, political opponents trying to resolve the situation, sometimes by talking, at other times by violence as, as they fought for their respective kings but as we know they in the end they both failed miserably and much blood is shed if anything their actions simply prove and are a good example of the limitations of human politics the fact that the regime of the chosen king was met with rebellion and oppositions shows you that there is a war going on. This kingdom conflict will continue in one form or another until Jesus comes in power and glory. What is happening in Afghanistan at the moment as, as they sort out the Christians and believers is, is exactly 
something that has been happening for thousands of years. It's part of the kingdom conflict. Kingdom of God versus the kingdom of darkness. And in the end, we know who's going to win. But nevertheless, this is the reality at present. But as his followers, as followers of Jesus, our King, we cannot allow the defiance against God to deter, to deter or depress us. We need to get a proper perspective and, and, and see how far we have come of where we have come from and where we are going. And then you will appreciate what is going on. As a final verse, this is, these are the words of the Apostle Paul to the Colossians, which was our first reading. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and he has brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That is a wonderful reality. Wonderful, wonderful salvation through the blood of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ who died for us. May God bless us.